It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. With a 6-3 to three conservative majority, the U.S. Supreme Court is aggressively filling its calendar with culture war clashes, taking up fights over abortion, gay rights, guns, affirmative action, and voting rights. Joining me to talk about this trend is Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. Everyone is talking about the abortion case and, you know, how high profile it is. But there are so many other cases that the court has been taking this term and even next term that really put the court right in the middle of culture wars. Absolutely. In addition to abortion, we have a big case involving gun rights. We have a climate change case this term. We now have a new immigration case involving asylum applications. There are religion cases. There are free speech cases. Uh, A big affirmative action case next term, voting rights. The list is really remarkable. All areas where there's an excellent chance we will see the court dividing along ideological lines. Which now means a divide along ideological lines means a win for the conservatives. It sure does. Chief Justice Roberts uh, occasionally has been siding with the court's liberals, at least in part, on some of these issues. But with a 6-3 conservative majority, the conservatives no longer need the chief justice. With most of these cases, June, the, the real question is how far will the court go? Abortion is a perfect example. Arguments strongly suggest that they were going to uphold this 15-week abortion ban in Mississippi. And the real question is, will they go even further and overturn Roe v. Wade? When listening to the oral arguments, I'm sometimes surprised that some of the conservative justices seem to be boldly suggesting positions that are contrary to precedent. The best example is the arguments in the Texas case where abortion rights are on the line, where it almost seemed like Roe v. Wade was an afterthought to some of the justices. Yeah, and the question is just whether they're going to overturn things. They're making very little secret of of their interest. They are looking at areas of law that were shaped when the court was more moderate or more even more liberal decades ago, and they are pretty openly 
suggesting that they are going to roll back some of those precedents, if not overturn them directly. Let's talk about guns, for example, and the Second Amendment case. How could they rule narrowly, and then how could they rule broadly? So in the Second Amendment, the core question here is whether there is a constitutional right to carry a handgun in public. New York is one of about eight states that have laws that, at least according to gun rights advocates, prevent most people from from doing that. And the court arguments in November strongly suggested they were poised to strike down that New York law and uh, along the way say there is a constitutional right to carry a handgun in public. And the real question in terms of how far they will go will be, well, how much room do they leave states to say, but you can't bring that handgun into a sensitive area like a courthouse or a school? During arguments, some justices like John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett were tossing out various areas like, say, Times Square on New Year's Eve that maybe uh, the government ought to be allowed to restrict weapons from. And that's really the question in the case is how much room they're going to leave for states to at least keep people from bringing handguns into certain areas. In a lot of the country, evidence of gun violence is increasing right now. Talking about New York, where I live, it's a major problem. So if the court hands down this decision in the midst of all this gun violence, it seems like they're almost being brazen about it when people are fighting for gun control. Of course, there are two schools of thought on that. And one line of questioning uh, in the arguments, I think, shed some light, which is uh, when the chief justice was asking questions, suggesting that somebody may have even more of a need to carry a handgun in one of those urban areas where a lot of this violence has been taking place. So it's very possible that when the court issues this decision, we will see a reflection of the idea that we've heard from the NRA and others on the gun rights side that the way to you know, stop a bad guy with a gun is, is a good guy with a gun. We'll see what they say, but that seems to be in the background. It's a New York case, and the mayor of New York, I think, will have a lot to say when this decision comes down. Let's turn to school tuition. Explain what the main case is about. So Maine, unlike most states, has parts of the state where there aren't public schools, at least uh, at the high school level and in some cases at the elementary and, and middle school level as well. And Maine has a unique program where they say to the local area, if you want, you can cut a deal with a private school around there or we'll cover the cost of private education by uh, helping parents with tuition but that money can't be used at a religious school. And it's that last part that's at issue in the Supreme Court. The arguments, as one would suspect, given this court, suggest that the court was poised to strike that down. We already know that the court has cleared the way for school vouchers to include religious schools more broadly. And this would just be another kind of step in the direction of perhaps even requiring governments when they're going to open up programs like this uh, to include religious schools in them. You know, usually you say you can't tell what the court is going to do based on oral arguments. But in a lot of these cases, it seems like the oral arguments are indicative of where the court is going to go. I mean, I can't imagine the court ruling in favor of Maine after those oral arguments. Yeah, it's very much the case. And oftentimes with some of these cases, the debate ends up being about what we talked about earlier. How far is the court going to go? Is it going to carve out those sensitive areas in the gun case where guns can't be brought? Is it going to go all the way and overturn Roe v. Wade in the abortion context? And, you know, one other big clue just even before you get to argument in these cases is 
many of these cases, in fact, most of these cases are ones the court didn't have to take. And the fact that they decided to take these cases up is already a strong suggestion that they are highly skeptical of the the lower court ruling and they are looking to push the law in a certain direction. And it doesn't seem like they're taking a break next term either because they're already lining up cases that are controversial. And speaking of not having to take a case, tell us about the Colorado case they took this week. This is an important new case. If you remember a few years ago, the case involving the Colorado baker who didn't want to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. This is very similar. It's also from Colorado. It also involves Colorado's anti-discrimination law, which covers sexual orientation. And in this case, it's an appeal from a web designer who says, I want to get in the business of designing web pages for weddings, but I don't want to do it for same-sex weddings because I have a religious objection to it. The court agreed to hear her appeal, even though she hasn't even started designing web pages, even though the law hasn't been applied against her. It will consider only her free speech arguments. It won't consider her religious rights arguments. But again, it's one of those cases where the court certainly did not have to agree to hear this appeal. And so I think it's fair to assume that there's a great deal of interest in bolstering free speech rights and letting businesses carve themselves out from these civil rights laws, at least when it comes to sexual orientation. Another case they took that I was actually surprised at was the case of the coach who wants to pray on the 50-yard line. A coach who was given accommodations by the school, told he could pray in private, told he could pray, you know, afterwards, but not with the team surrounding him. And his insistence is that he wants to pray on the 50-yard line right after the game. Yeah, and part of the reason this was a bit of a reach for the court to take, uh, perhaps a surprise for some people, is that it's pretty fact-intensive. The two sides tend to disagree over what exactly happened here. But the, the upshot of it is the coach is arguing, these prayers are my private religious expression, and the school has no right to tell me I can't do it. And the school is saying that this had become a public event because he was doing it in the 50-yard lines. Players were joining him. Members of the public were even joining him. And that uh, that had the effect, among other things, of coercing some students into feeling like they had to take part in it. The court has not said whether it's going to hear this case this term. Just based on the calendar, they probably will, but they haven't said that officially yet. You know, along the lines of cases they didn't have to take but are taking is an affirmative action case. Yeah, this is going to be huge. This is another case where the court is considering overturning a major precedent or maybe multiple major precedents. The court back in 2003 reaffirmed the idea that universities could use race as an admissions factor to diversify their campuses. The Supreme Court is now going to consider overturning that decision. It has a pair of appeals, one involving Harvard College, one involving the University of North Carolina. So one's a private school, which is governed under Title VI civil rights law, and and University of North Carolina just under the Equal Protection Clause. And the court is going to, as I said, consider overturning that, that ruling, which would mean that universities would not be able to use race as an admissions factor. That would be a huge deal for universities. Most selective universities still use race as an admissions factor for the sake of trying to to diversify. And as you alluded to, 
this case was also a little bit of a reach for the court. They didn't have to take it. The North Carolina case has not gone through a federal appeals court yet. The court reached out to take that directly from a federal district court so that it could take up this issue next term. We went from the Colorado Baker to the Colorado Web Designer. It's the same group behind both those cases, a conservative group. Are conservative groups behind a lot of these cases? Also, the affirmative action case is another conservative group behind it. Yeah, they absolutely are. There are a number of them. They specialize in different areas. The group that, as you mentioned, was behind the Colorado cases, Alliance Defending Freedom, has become very prominent in pressing religious rights claims in recent years. And, you know, the lawyers there are are very good and they have good success with this court. This is a court that's very receptive to them. And that's part of the reason that we've seen so many of these religious rights cases in recent years. Now, as far as voting rights, this term, they blocked the ruling in Alabama of a three-judge panel that told the Republican legislator to redraw the map. That case is set for next term. Any other voting rights cases next term? That's the one that we have right now, but it it is a huge one. We may well see some other cases coming up, especially if we have restrictions that apply to the November election and restrictions in terms of ballot access or rules or, or that sort of thing. The case that they have agreed to hear, this Alabama case, involves the Voting Rights Act and under what circumstances states need to make sure that some districts are heavily minority so that minorities have a chance to elect the candidate of their choice. In this case, the lower court said Alabama could have easily created a second heavily black district in its seven-district congressional map and violated the Voting Rights Act by creating only one of those. And that's the ruling that the Supreme Court has put on hold. So Alabama will have just one heavily black district for the November election. And the argument next term will uh, decide whether that is going to be the case going forward for uh, the rest of this 10-year election cycle. So next term, we may have the first black female justice on the Supreme Court. Who has Biden interviewed? Do we know who he's interviewed so far and where he stands? There's reporting that he has interviewed the three candidates who have always been on the the short list. That's Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson of the D.C. Circuit here in Washington, California Supreme Court Justice Leandro Kruger, and U.S. District Court Judge from South Carolina, Michelle Childs. Jackson is the one who she was interviewed for an earlier Supreme Court vacancy back when Obama was president. She has always been, at least from the outside, at the top of the list and probably the odds-on favorite now based on the various reporting out there. Thanks so much, Greg, as always. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Accolades for Judge Katanji Brown Jackson from the majority leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, to a high school classmate, Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Arenberg. She is just such an outstanding nominee. It's amazed me that no one in her past who has worked with her, both when she was on the private side and then as a judge, has anything bad to say about her, whether they're Democrat, Republican, liberal, or conservative. All of us who did high school debate knew and respected Ketanji Brown. Uh, and some of us feared her because we knew that if we ever competed with her, we would come out with a big L because she was the superstar in high school debate. President Biden announced Judge Jackson as his nominee to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court last week. And now the hard part of the confirmation process is ahead for Jackson. The Senate Judiciary hearings, which in the case of Supreme Court nominees, have become confrontational and at times downright nasty. Joining me is Alatunde Johnson, a professor at Columbia Law School. Judge Jackson would be joining a court where the conservatives overwhelmingly have the votes and they seem willing to push the court to the right on issues like abortion, guns, religion. What does Judge Jackson's addition to the court add in that context? So I think for the general public, we are always really focused on the really contentious ideological issues. And so we see Judge Jackson's addition and say, it's not really going to change the 6-3 court. She's replacing Breyer. Her views may be aligned with his. And I think that's true on some of the high-profile issues. I think her impact is, one, her historic nomination, which it's easy to forget, but we shouldn't forget there's never been a Black woman on the court. The other dimension of impact is that she has really a breadth of experience. And on the issues that the public tends to pay less attention to, criminal justice issues, access to courts, all of those things, she's had experience representing people in private practice and serving as a public defender. All of those things will will shape her rulings. And then finally, you know, you don't know how the court will be in the long term. We're looking at a current court. We know how it's composed. We know their willingness to put aside precedent in certain cases, but that may not be true in 10 years. So this is an appointment for a longer period. So do you think her background, her experiences have the potential to add to the discussions that the justices have about the cases in their conferences? 
Yes, I think her background could make a tremendous difference. I mean, for one, right now, there's nobody on the court who's had criminal defense experience of any extensive nature or who served as a public defender. And so just today, the, the court decided to not review a case involving ineffective assistance of counsel when one attorney represented four co-defendants, the same attorney, and raising real questions about conflict of interest. And that's the kind of case that she might bring insight to. We don't know if it would make a difference for sure, but those are the kinds of things that the justices can bring up in oral argument. They can bring up in discussions with their colleagues, and sometimes it influences how justices even decide decisions. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor would talk about her experience with Justice Thurgood Marshall, who was the last justice on the court with significant criminal justice experience, and about how he would talk to her about what it was to represent Black men in the South who had been unjustly accused of crimes and to represent people on death row. And she writes about it as shaping her view of criminal justice issues. It doesn't mean that she voted with him in every case. It doesn't translate like that. But it can bring perspective and a more in-depth understanding of how these legal rules that the justices are deciding um, shape the lives of individuals. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who voted for Judge Jackson to be on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, tweeted that the radical left was behind the Jackson pick. And I think in point of fact, groups like Demand Justice were behind her pick. However, is she in any sense radical left? Yeah, I'm not even sure what those terms mean. And it's really disheartening to have that kind of debate around her. I mean, you look at her record. And first of all, she was recently elevated from the district court to the appellate court. And her record was thoroughly come through. And all anyone found was a reasonable judge, who I think would make from all signs a really fair-minded justice. So I don't think there's anything in her record that really points to that. Temperamentally, um, people only have lovely things to say about her. I have met her on several occasions. She clerked several years after I did on the Supreme Court. And she's just a lovely person, a warm and generous person. Um, She discussed when she was being presented by Biden um, as the nominee about how influenced she was by Justice Breyer and his temperament, um, which is that he really tries to be generous and fair-minded in terms of the legal issues and also in how he interacts with his colleague. And that grace is what I see in Judge Brown Jackson from all my interactions and from what litigants and clerks say, but also in what she has professed she aspires to be. So I think it's a disheartening um, debate, but I don't think it's about her. I think really it's about a larger fight around the court and the importance of that to the Republican base. I think that's a lot of what's informing this comment. Judge Jackson has no apparent record of rulings or writings or speeches on these hot-button issues that I mentioned, abortion, gun rights, freedom of religion, etc., that sometimes drive those tough confirmation battles. So is that an advantage for a nominee for her? Yes, it can be an advantage, I guess, in the sense that there's not a lot to wave around. I mean, as I mentioned, they've already recently had a confirmation hearing and there was nothing. I mean, people questioned her on the fact that she had served as a public defender and 
that just seems a little bit of an odd line of questioning since people are entitled to have defense. It's a constitutional right. So, so it was an odd thing to ask her about. I really do believe that senators should ask tough questions during confirmation hearings, and I think nominees should do their best to answer them. I mean, advice and consent is something we should take very seriously. But in terms of her background, given that she just had a confirmation hearing and that she's been a judge for so long, there's a lot to look at that's on the record, and none of it has proven to be controversial. Really, she's the kind of nominee who you would think would garner bipartisan support. And I really think it's just a testament to this time in which there's so much focus on the court. You know, certainly it's been a long focus by conservative groups, and I think increasingly progressive groups have turned their attention to the court a lot out of concern, I guess, for the direction of the court. And I think it's in that climate that you have people taking on or even questioning someone like Brown Jackson, because she's a very, you know, breadth of experience, very well-credentialed nominee. One of her more famous opinions concerned former White House counsel Don McGahn testifying before a House committee where she wrote that presidents are not kings. Is that something they might attack her on? Yeah, I mean, we saw that come up in her um, confirmation hearings, and I know it's been there in some of the rhetoric. Everything about how she approached that case, which is about executive power, it was vindicated um, by the D.C. Circuit. Um, So I don't think on the merits it's troubling, but sometimes in these political confirmation hearings, they're looking for any angle. And I think one angle could be, is she biased? And she was talking about a role that I think many of us would agree with, which is that the executive isn't a king and that Congress, for separation of powers purposes, should be allowed to have inquiry into what is potential wrongdoing by the executive branch. But I expect that because there's not that much else in her record to really contest, that that would be something that will be asked about. Republican Senator John Cornyn asked her, what role does race play, Judge Jackson, in the kind of judge that you have been and the kind of judge that you will be? That question sort of stands out. No white nominee has ever been asked that. Do you expect her to face more of those kinds of questions? I thought that was a particularly disheartening question. Yeah. um, As far as I know, no white nominee has ever been asked that. And it's really a dangerous direction to go in because it suggests that the only people who have race or the only time in which race is is salient is when you're talking about a nominee of color and that they're in fact being asked to defend their positions and legal perspectives. The assumption is that if you're white or maybe if you're a white male, that your views are just neutral. We're all shaped by our experience. um, And at the same time, someone who's been a judge, you expect that they're also bringing a certain kind of temperament that allows them to look at a range of things and trying to determine a legal rule, right? And read the briefs and listen to the oral arguments and take all of that seriously. So I think it's a disheartening line of inquiry. It suggests that they want to make race salient and it's really troubling. I wonder why we place so much emphasis on these confirmation hearings. As you say, it's become so political at this point, 
And when you look back, I mean, a lot of what the nominees say during the confirmation hearings, you know, you can't really rely on. For example, just about all of them have said Roe v. Wade is established law. And it's precedent on precedent. But we see what's happening with Roe v. Wade, and, you know, they seem to be willing to ignore precedent sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really good question to ask, you know, what's the value of the hearings themselves? And sometimes they do feel very staged. The nominees are encouraged to give as little of an answer as possible, or at least it seems that way. Um, And sometimes the senators seem more like they're talking to themselves or to their constituents and really asking genuine questions. I think that it can be useful. I mean, certainly I think it's important if we are taking advice and consent seriously that the public has an opportunity to hear from a nominee, even if it's inadequate in all of these ways. It's certainly also important to vet the nominee's background and for us to understand if they have temperament or other issues. It's painful when you have allegations of sexual harassment or sexual assault, but it's important that those kinds of things are aired as as were aired in the Kavanaugh and Thomas hearings. But I agree that in terms of thinking about how are you going to rule in a particular case, or even as your judicial methodology or your philosophy, sometimes it's really hard to get answers on that. I mean, they could ask about how a justice, if confirmed, would approach a particular question. That might be more fruitful than asking just, will they follow a decision? Because you're right, they always say they will follow a decision. So if the Democrats hold together, as they have on judicial nominations of Biden so far, she doesn't need Republican votes to be confirmed. Is it important that she get some Republican votes, though? I think it's important that she get Republican votes in the sense of what it signals for our willingness to be honest and fair with regard to judicial um, confirmations. I mean, at this point, in recent uh, memory, we have the fast-tracking of the Amy Comey Barrett hearings. We have not giving a hearing to Merrick Garland. If we really want to reset and have a different confirmation process, it, it seems like it would start with giving her a respectful hearing. And given that there's nothing in her record that is contentious to confirming her in the way that people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer himself, uh, you know, received overwhelming support from Republicans. I, I, I think that that would be a better outcome, even if, you know, I'm not sure how likely it is. Thanks for being on the show. That's Professor Alatunde Johnson of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.